Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, guest teacher Susie Gomez has the fourth and final part of the series, Subversive. Her message is titled, Collective Liberation, The Woman at the Well. Ebony Gaines has the introduction. What does Black History Month mean to me? I mean, this might sound a little harsh. It's not that I think it's a waste of time. I think, like, it's not an accurate or a full representation of how much Black history is important and necessary to American history as a whole. I do see it as, like, an opportunity um, to instill this importance in people so that prayerfully down the road, Black history is recognized as just as important as the whole of American history. I feel like a lot of people have this perspective of racial reconciliation being everybody coming together and everybody like joining hands and singing kumbaya at the end of the day, but it's really like recognizing that I'm I'm me. It's recognizing my history, my culture, where I come come from, how my ancestors have helped build this just like yours have and saying, hey, because we have this common ground, this common history, this common like sense of ownership in this country and in this world, just being humans, we should hold hands and we should come together and we should reconcile. I think one of the most important steps you can make towards racial reconciliation is having intentional conversations with people who are nothing like you and asking questions that may be uncomfortable for you and for that person, but with the intention to learn something that you didn't know before. And then not just getting the knowledge and saying, hey, I know this now, but actually saying, hey, how do I create space in my life to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Or how can I create space in my community and in my circle? And how can I educate others on what I've learned so that I can be a part of the solution versus um, replicating the problems? Well, good morning, family. Morning. It, you know, I, I feel like I talk about weather every time I come up here and say my greeting. But, but I promise not to talk about it every time. But I, I, I came from Orlando last night. And so when you talk about weather extremes, I was in 90 degree humid weather yesterday by the pool. And now I'm here in Rockford where it's not 90 degrees. But I want there's a point to saying this though, because I say this as my introduction to say that I really love y'all. I really love you because. I I genuinely mean it when I say that I would choose to be here this morning with you all in Rockford over being poolside in Orlando. So if that's not love, come on, y'all. The fact that I'm meeting some friends for some deep dish pizza later helps too. Um, But despite the fact that I'm excited about having deep dish and I'm excited to be here with you this morning, I'm excited about some other things too. Um, We're continuing the series, Subversive. And I actually never saw this video until this morning, and I didn't know that Ebony was going to be saying the things that she said, but really it's almost like we compared notes, and what she said has so much to do with this message that I'm going to give this morning. So I'm just really excited 
that God has something to say, and I hope that we have ears to hear. So real quick, if I can just pray us into this message. Lord, we come here this morning already primed and ready to meet with you. Thank you for the worship team that has prepared us to be in your presence. And Holy Spirit, we just continue to submit ourselves to you. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are fertile and hands that are willing, feet that are willing to move where you move us. And we ask that you would do what you're so good at doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this morning as we end the series Subversive, we're going to look at one of my favorite passages of scripture. I say that I have a lot of favorite passages of scripture, but, but this really is one of my favorite stories. It's found in the book of John in chapter 4, and it's the story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, before we turn there, uh, I don't know if anyone has defined terms for you yet. I know that we're at the end of the series, but maybe, Loki, you've been wondering, what does subversive really mean? Maybe you forgot to, like, go out the doors of church last Sunday and, and ask Siri, hey, Siri, what does subversive mean? <laughs> Um, And I know that many of you have an impressive vocabulary and you already use fancy words in your everyday dialogues, but just in case you need a reminder of what subversive means, or maybe you came for the first time today and so you're a little bit lost on what we're talking about, I want to define terms for you. I'm going to give you a definition of what subversive means. And so the other day in my weekly reading of the Harvard Review, I came up, thank you for laughing because that was totally a joke. I don't read the Harvard Review. Um, This is from Wikipedia, okay? So Wikipedia told me that subversion comes from the Latin word subverte, which means to overthrow. So subversion refers to a process by which the values and principles of a system in place are contradicted or reversed in an attempt to transform the established social order and its structures of power, authority, hierarchy, and social norms. So it's kind of an undoing of things that already are, and it has to do with systems and structures. Now, depending on which context it's used in, an act of subversion can be viewed as a really negative thing. Hello, January 6th, anybody? But in the case of Jesus and the way that he went about subversion, the way that his ministry, the way that the gospel is demonstrated to be subversive, um, we can see that, that transforming broken and sinful structures of power and authority, hierarchy and social norms can really be a good thing. Because really, since the time of creation, we've gotten a lot of things wrong. We've, we've turned things on its head. And oftentimes, I don't know if you've ever heard of the kingdom of God being called the upside down kingdom, but really what we've done is we've turned the order of the way things God wanted things to be, we've turned it's on, that, that on its head and it's become upside down. So really the kingdom of God is the right side up kingdom. Jesus wants to come and show us the way that it was meant to be, the way that He, God, wants us to be reconciled to him. This was the whole ministry of Jesus. So a subversive gospel is really a good thing. Jesus was the master of reframing, redeeming, and even rewriting broken narratives. And really what he did during his time on earth was establish the authority of the kingdom now and forevermore. So I think the story of his interaction with the woman 
in John 4 is, is the perfect example of the subversive nature of Jesus' ministry in a world full of false and debilitating narratives. So let's read the text together. We're going to read it in portions. I want to start in John 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll talk about it a little and come back to it, okay? So John 4 verses 1 through 9 says this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, why not? Uh, Let me just make it plain for you. Uh, Jews thought they were better than Samaritans. This is why they did not associate with Samaritans. To the Jews, Samaritans were considered a half-breed, mixed-blood people. They were not only mixed blood, but they were mixed up in their ways of worship. They did things differently. They, they weren't as kosher as Jews. They didn't do things as righteously and right as the Jewish people did. So Jews and Samaritans did not associate. And a rabbi, a teacher, a man of any sort of reputation like Jesus would not allow himself to be caught speaking to a Samaritan woman, let alone ask her for a drink for anything that she touched would be unclean. Why would he ask her for a drink? So let me amplify this point for you a little. Um, they say that in, in one of the traditional prayers that Jewish men would pray would go something like this. Blessed are you, O God, or in other words, thank you, God. Blessed are you, O God, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Blessed are you, God, who has not made me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And this woman, though she was not enslaved per se, she was enslaved to a lot of narratives that were said about her. And she was a Samaritan. She was a woman. She fit all of these categories. So why would a man like Jesus want to associate with her? One thing that you might not notice upon first reading is that in the beginning of this passage, it says that Jesus, on his way to Galilee, had to go through Samaria. Had to go through Samaria. So from point A to point B, Jesus had to go through Samaria, which was right in the middle. But uh, for any Jew, remember Jews do not associate with Samaritans. For any good Jew who did not want to associate with Samaritans, they would go out of their way to avoid any kind of contact with Samaritans. This is how much they looked down upon them and had wanted nothing to do with them. So even if it meant going the long way to get from point A to point B, if you were a good Jew, you would go the long way and avoid going through Samaria. But the passage here says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Maybe he was in a rush. Maybe he had to get to his place so quickly that he had to go through Samaria. 
But if you look at the rest of the text, Jesus stays for a while. He lingers. It doesn't look like Jesus is in much of a rush. So why would Jesus have to go through Samaria unless he had purpose there? I think Jesus went to Samaria. He had to go through Samaria because he had purpose there. He went to Samaria on purpose because he had purpose. And maybe he had to give someone purpose. Let's keep reading and see what happens. I think there's something subversive going on here. See, when you look at John 4, you see that Jesus is doing what he's so good at doing. He's reframing the narrative. He's transforming an already established social order and hierarchy. Jews and Samaritans do not associate. So what does Jesus do? He, a Jew, associates with a Samaritan. Jewish men and Samaritan women do not associate. So what does Jesus do? A Jewish man associates with a Samaritan woman. Jews don't go to Samaria. They go through Samaria. Only if they have to. So what does Jesus do? He stops and stays for a while. He lingers. He kicks up his feet and he asks a Samaritan woman for a drink. What is Jesus up to? And why did Jesus have to go to Samaria? I think Jesus is already demonstrating four chapters into John that he does things differently. He's already turned water into wine, and he's done it differently. Like most people will save the best or give the best wine at the beginning of a wedding feast, and Jesus already performed his miracle and brought the best wine out at the end. Uh, He also uh, didn't want people to know that he was this miracle worker, but then here in John 4, something shifts, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, But Jesus is already demonstrating that he does things a little differently. Jesus goes against the current. He's countercultural. He goes against the status quo. He establishes new ways of living and being. And Jesus does not avoid uncomfortable situations. In fact, the way that Jesus does things, the way that he loves people, the way that he interacts with people and loves people is so radically different that the way that he lives makes other people feel uncomfortable. Jesus lived in a way that was so outside of people's paradigms that it made people curious, but it also probably made a whole lot of people feel uncomfortable. Jesus demonstrates here, through his interaction with the Samaritan woman, that the good news really is for anyone and everyone. I think Forest City is starting to catch on to something about Jesus' ministry. The gospel, the good news, is for anyone and everyone and especially for the most vulnerable, despised, and marginalized in society. This is who Jesus is. This is what his ministry was. Uh, If you were here last week and you had the honor of hearing Arya and Lauren give the incredible message that they did, you heard many great things. And uh, in case you missed it, you can go back and you can listen to it. Even if you heard it last week, go back to the podcast and listen to it again. Um, and I could stand up here and just spit off a bunch of quotes. Like even if my whole message was just quoting things that they already said last week, it would be a great message. Uh, but one thing that was referenced was a study that, that showcased bias in people. Uh, it, it, you know, they talked about how there was a study done that showed how even our physical bodies react and show empathy for people who look more like us, people who we can most readily identify with. 
So, so each of us has bias, and it shows up even in our unconscious, subconscious, uh, physical reactions to things. So, so what does this mean for people who want to be discipled in the ways of Jesus? Jesus, who fought through people's bias. Jesus, who made it a point to, to break down barriers. Jesus, who broke laws of social norms and made it a point to be with people who were radically different. Uh, people who society told him he shouldn't mix with. What does it mean to follow Jesus in this way if we all know that we have some degree of bias in us? I remember hearing Pastor Eugene Cho preach on this passage, uh, this, this passage on, in John 4. And the question that he asked repeatedly was this. He said, where is your Samaria? Who is your Samaria? Where is the place that few are willing to go? Uh, where is the place that most others would avoid, but you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit, and you know that that's where Christ is calling you to follow? Maybe you need to fight through some bias that's inherent in your own life and society, and you need to go to places that are like Samaria to you. So where can we go so that we can be proximate and ask people for a drink, people who are different from ourselves. Who might God be calling us into relationship with so that as we follow Christ, we might go with Christ to the margins and we can share the good news and help quench the thirst of those who are most vulnerable and unseen. Where can we fight through our bias and be more like Jesus? Or, or maybe, maybe the bigger work needs to start in us. Maybe we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, in his book, Subversive Witness, where I think we actually got the idea for this sermon series, uh, Dominique Gilliard says that for all of us, especially those of us sitting in this room or those of us who might be listening later, all of us to some degree have some level of privilege. Just like how all of us have some degree of bias, all of us have some degree of privilege. And so what he does so masterfully, using a lot of good biblical texts, he, he, he challenges us to use our privilege and leverage it for the sake of others. Use your privilege and leverage it for the sake of others. That's what the entire gospel message is. Jesus, fully God, became fully man, leveraged his privilege in order that we might be restored in relationship to God. Jesus leveraged his privilege for our sake. And so as followers of Jesus, people who adhere to the subversive gospel, where might we use our privilege and leverage it for the sake of others? But before we can go and offer someone a drink and say, let me help quench your thirst, maybe the work needs to begin in us. Maybe first we have to sit with the uncomfortable truth that we all have bias. We all have places where God needs to work in us, to undo things in us, to undo those lies that we have bought into, to undo the lies of empire and really be submitted to the truth of kingdom. Are there places in our heart where we need to be submitted to God first? Lord, help us to be comfortable with being uncomfortable first in your presence that we might become more like you. Maybe you don't think of yourself 
as a hateful person or one who discriminates in the ways that we've been taught about discrimination and prejudice. But again, while we all have some level, level of privilege, we all have some level of bias that needs undoing. So Holy Spirit, would you have your way in us? May that be our posture. Maybe your Samaria is simply a place where your people are not the majority, where you're not always comfortable. Maybe your Samaria is a place where you go not to be the savior or not to be the helper, but to listen and to learn and be enriched by diverse expressions of life and culture. Maybe going to Samaria requires you not just to talk about abolition, but live out integration. Let me uh, put some more meat around what I just said. Maybe going to Samaria requires you not just to talk about abolition, but live out integration. So Steve over in Elgin, when he kicked off this series over there, he referenced um, a famous minister and, quote, the father of revivalism named Charles Finney. And Charles Finney passionately and creatively worked hard for the abolition of slavery here in America. And, And his ideals and his heart was good. But, but there was still some undoing that needed to be done in him. Even though he worked hard to see the abolition of slavery and, and he called the people of God into this, uh, he, he, he fell short in some ways. So he, Steve in his sermon talked about how uh, he actually is credited as being the one who invented the altar call. So, you know, when, when the pastor at the end of the service says, now, if you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit to come and respond to the message that you just heard, come forward and receive prayer, make a public declaration of your commitment to follow after Christ. That was Charles Finney who started that. And you know where, you know what was attached to that? It was attached to his commitment to the abolition of slavery. He said he, people would come forward in response to this message. They would receive Christ, and then he would say, now I have an action step for you. Now sign this petition so that we can end the sin of slavery. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's awesome. That's what we should be doing. But here's where he fell short. Even within his own church, Though everybody was welcome, there was segregation. Even within the pews, there was segregation. They fell short of integration. So they talked about abolition, but even in their own daily life, there was a lack of integration. So while he talked about abolition, there were some places where sin needed to be abolished in his own heart as well. Charles Finney, the father of revivalism, Susie Gomez, Eric Parks, Lauren, what's your last name, Lauren? Scott, Lauren Scott. You know, whoever is up here preaching the gospel, we're not Jesus. We fall short. There are ways in which God still needs to do a work in us. And so why would we not sit and hear the message, read the words of the page, and allow the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Scripture, speak to us and to continue to undo the things in us so that we might become more like Christ? Sometimes you can advocate for the liberation of other people and fail to see ways in which you yourself need to be liberated. Lord, let this be a word for us. Let's keep reading. John 4, <clears throat> verses 10 through 26. After the Samaritan woman says to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for for a drink? Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes he will explain everything to us then Jesus declared I who speak to you am he I who speak to you am he you know this is the very first time that Jesus openly and clearly reveals to someone his identity as the Christ, the Messiah, the one that everyone has been waiting for. This is the first time. You know, just one chapter earlier, a Pharisee, an important religious leader called Nicodemus, comes to Jesus in the secret of the night. And he comes to Jesus searching for answers. Now, if he wanted to, Jesus certainly could have revealed to Nicodemus his identity. Nicodemus was searching for answers, and Jesus could have revealed to this important religious leader of reputation and status. He could have revealed to Nicodemus who he was. Now, he gave him some clues, and, and John 3 is where we get perhaps the most famous line of the entire Bible, right, where Jesus states his mission, his purpose, his identity. Uh, but Nicodemus wasn't quite picking up what Jesus was putting down at this moment. Jesus wasn't telling him clearly, I am the Messiah, the one who you are speaking to, and he, he doesn't say it like that to Nicodemus. It would have made sense for him to say it to Nicodemus, an important man who had status, an important man who, if he was converted and he came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, can you believe the ripple effect that that would have had? This important man named Nicodemus decides to follow after Jesus and confess that he is the Messiah, the one that they'd all been waiting for. But instead, Jesus chooses to reveal his identity to a Samaritan woman just one chapter later. Have you ever thought about the way that that succession happens? He doesn't tell Nicodemus, but he tells the Samaritan woman. What is Jesus doing? This gospel is so subversive in nature. Again, we're just four chapters into the book of John, and Jesus is showing us he doesn't do things the conventional way. He doesn't do things the way that the world would expect him to. 
I wonder if the ways of Jesus make us feel uncomfortable sometimes. Even if you grew up going to church and you learned all the Bible stories, we reduce Jesus to, to, to just being a good person who doesn't do bad things. We, we reduce Christianity to, to being good people who don't do bad things. But really, the way that Jesus lived his life was so radically different from the world. And it made other people feel uncomfortable. Not, not, I, I'm not saying go and live in like weird, wacky ways just to make other people feel uncomfortable. But Jesus lived his life so differently that it made people curious. Something would be stirred inside of them because Jesus lived differently. So again, why would Jesus come to this earth in this way under the circumstances, under the circumstances that he came under unless he was trying to make a point? Remember who Jesus is. He was fully God, but he was fully man. But he chose to come to the earth in the body of a brown man, a refugee from a people who were historically oppressed, enslaved, and colonized. He came to to earth from this social location on purpose, with purpose. He came through the body of a young, unmarried virgin who many would have looked at with scorn and condemnation for finding herself unmarried and pregnant with a baby whom her husband-to-be was not the father. Jesus didn't even have a proper place to be born into. He was tucked away into obscurity. He was turned away because there was no room for him. And even from the time that he was a baby, people were after him and they wanted him dead because Jesus was a threat to every empire, king, and kingdom that would oppose the rule and reign of God. This is who Jesus is. And this is how he came. So why would he come this way unless we, he wanted us to pay attention? There's something different about this king. Jesus lived in a way that was so different, but only those who really had eyes to see and ears to hear could understand this message. This was a message that was freely given to anyone who found themselves hungry and thirsty for truth, hungry and thirsty for change. And who more than people on the margins wanted change? Who more than people who had been left on the outside really wanted to know the truth of a saving God who did not come to condemn but to save Now, we all know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But do we remember that right after that, there's a reminder that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn, but he came to save. So Jesus' mission was not to point fingers of condemnation and tell us that we're doing things wrong. His point was to come and save So there's something compelling about this message. And who would be more hungry and thirsty for life-transforming truth than those who desperately wanted change? Are there places in our life where we've become so comfortable that we don't even want change? We need to stay hungry and thirsty for this Jesus. Jesus wanted everyone to know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But remember... He came to save the world. What do we need saving from? And again, let's remember that this message is a a message for those, especially for those on the margin, especially for those that the world would forget about and 
deem as un- unimportant. So if you look at the life of Jesus, you'll see that he actually prioritizes and develops purposeful proximity to the marginalized and the outcast and the oppressed. So whether it be Samaritans or the diseased or the unclean, the left for dead, the demon possessed or women, Jesus was intentional about being proximate to those who the the rest of the world would deem as unimportant or undesirable. Jesus went to Samaria, spoke at length in public to a Samaritan woman who was marginalized by people even from within her own community. And he did this on purpose with purpose. Now, we don't know much of the backstory of this woman in, in John 4. All we know is that she's a Samaritan woman who comes to the well to draw water at noon, the hottest part of the day. This is when no one else would usually be around. This is not the typical time that women would go to draw water from the well. But she goes to the well at the hottest part of the day, maybe because she wanted to avoid people. Maybe because she didn't want other women to chatter about her. She didn't want to be seen by other people. So this is why the woman went to the well at the hottest part of the day. Um, she didn't want to have to deal with people's gossip about her. And, and, you know, some scholars would say that this well was maybe even out of the way for her. So maybe this wasn't the closest well to her, but she went the extra mile because she wanted to make sure that she could avoid the people that would be at the well. So she went at the hottest part of the day. She went to a well that was out of the way. And then she goes to draw water and she encounters a Jewish rabbi who's sitting there by the well. Well, 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 this wasn't something that she was planning on. But then again, I bet as she saw Jesus sitting at the well off in the distance, she didn't expect him to bother with her. Because what would a Jewish man want to do with a Samaritan woman? She thought maybe he would get up and walk away because he saw her approaching. But then something weird happens. She gets to the well, and this man strikes up conversation with her. And now I, I, I know that we can't necessarily hear tone in the, in the text, But when I read this passage, I wonder if there was something different in Jesus' voice that she could hear. When he asks her for a drink, I wonder if she catches on right away. This man sounds different. It doesn't sound like this man condemns me. It doesn't sound like this man wants to throw shade my way. He's asking me for a drink, and there's somehow some sincerity in his voice. There might even be some empathy that she starts to hear in his voice but she can't help but respond. This is so out of the ordinary. She says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Not knowing that Jesus already knows everything about her, she's probably thinking to herself, not only am I a Samaritan woman, but this man doesn't even know. I am a Samaritan woman who has a reputation. I am a Samaritan woman who had to come to this well, the hottest part of the day, out of the way, because people within my own community do not want to have anything to do with me. So this man does not know who he's asking for a drink. And Jesus, so good at reframing narratives, he's so good at turning conversations upside down and doing things out of the ordinary that he turns this conversation around and he says, if only you knew who was asking you for a drink. If only you knew who it was who's speaking to you right now and what I could offer you. Jesus was so good at reframing narratives that he's about to turn her understanding of thirst upside down. And and he's about to change her ideas about what it means to worship upside down as well. So as this interaction continues, Jesus tells the woman things about her life that only the Messiah, 
the Christ, the anointed one of God could know. And when he says these things, he's not shaming her. What he's actually doing is he's saving her. He did not come to condemn, he came to save. Jesus reveals that he has knowledge about who she is. Knowledge that has probably been used against her for years and years. But he also reveals to her knowledge about who he is. He is the Messiah. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. And simply by virtue of giving her the power of knowledge of who he is, he's giving her a new identity. One point I want to make here is this. I I know we said that we don't really know all the details of this woman's backstory. We don't know how she ended up getting married five times and then living with a man who is now not her husband. But, But I want you to know it doesn't say that she was divorced five times. She was married five times, had five husbands. Now, I think a lot of times when people talk about this woman, they they simply uh, sketch her out to be this scandalous woman with a bad reputation. She's a loose woman with loose morals and values. But really, we don't know. You know, in that day and age, a woman did not have the power or the authority to divorce a man, so it wasn't by her choice. When she, if she was divorced by a man, he chose to divorce her. It doesn't say that she has any children. Maybe he divorced her because she couldn't have children. Maybe... She had husbands who died on her. Maybe more than one husband died on her, and that's why she got remarried. We don't know this woman's story. We don't know her narrative, but people love to make assumptions, don't they? I wonder if when she spoke to Jesus, there was something different in the way that he interacted with her that made her feel safe enough to continue in conversation with him. I think Jesus was identifying in her, hard things have happened to you. And people have shunned you because of it. I know things about you that only the Messiah could know. But I don't condemn you for it. I'm here to bring you salvation. I wonder if there was something stirring inside of this woman's heart where she was getting the sense that this man is different. This interaction here reveals to her and to us that God is not concerned about outward appearance, past mistakes, gossip, or rumors about you. He sees the heart. He knows the heart. He wants you to know that he knows everything about you, and he still wants to pursue relationship with you. He does not want to condemn you. He wants to save you. He wants to liberate you. He wants you to know the liberation of being in relationship with him. You know, God wants us to know that we're loved And the natural response to knowing that we're loved by God is worship. God wants our worship because God wants us to know that we are loved by him. This is why the conversation starts to flow into worship. See, in this passage, it seems weird that this woman would start to argue with Jesus. Jesus just said, I know you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not even your husband. And for for a lot of people, it seems like the conversation takes a weird turn because the woman starts talking about worship. Now, you guys say we should worship like this, but we say we should worship like this. What do you think? It seems like maybe the woman felt uncomfortable and she wanted to change the topic. Jesus just drops this bomb on her and she just, so should we worship in the temple or on the mountain? What do you think? It seems weird, right? But again, if you connect the dots and you recognize that there's something stirring inside of her, that she's, she's starting to recognize that there's something different about this guy. Maybe this could be the Messiah. Maybe it would be natural for a question about worship to overflow and bubble out of her. It seems a little off key. 
You're right when you say no, you have no husband. Now, Jesus, should we go to Jerusalem or should we worship like this? Um, it makes sense for her to ask this question because here's a woman who has had to live her life according to rules set by other people. In that culture, you couldn't be married five times and shack up with another man who wasn't your husband and expect to walk with your head high. She's been told what she can't do all her life. And even in worship, she's been told that she's been doing it all wrong. Have any of you watched the, the series, The Chosen? There's, there's an app that you can get on your phone. It's called The Chosen. It's a free mini-series that does an enactment of the Gospels. And it, it's actually a good enactment. I know sometimes we've seen like Bible movies and stuff like that and they're kind of cheesy. But this, this is actually really, really good. So go back and watch The Chosen if you have a chance. But um, I remember in The Chosen's depiction of this scene in John 4. You know, they add some nuance to it. There's, there's words and, and dialogue that are not in the text, but maybe could be inferred. Uh, and, and in this interaction, Jesus, he's, he's sitting with the woman at the well, and he says this to her. He says, woman, I, I have come to break barriers. I have come to break barriers. My interaction with you right now is breaking barriers between our two people. Our, our two people groups, our genders, our social classes. I'm breaking barriers right now. It's, it's breaking barriers that dictate where and how you worship. She's been told you can't worship like that. And then Jesus comes and he says, no, God is spirit. And God sees your spirit, knows your spirit, and is more concerned that you worship in spirit and in truth than whether it's in a mountain or in a temple. Jesus' subversive ministry broke through barriers of race, gender, class, and status. Jesus came to break barriers. Jesus is telling this woman, woman, now that you've met me, the Messiah, I give you new identity and you can now worship me freely. I am giving you liberation. Now this is a, a long passage and there's more to the story, but I'm just going to tell you the rest of the story. Uh, after verse 26, the disciples who had gone to go get lunch... They come back to the scene and they see Jesus interacting with this woman. And the text even says, nobody has the audacity to say it to Jesus, but they're all thinking it. They're all thinking, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? What is this scene that we're seeing? And the next thing you see happen is the woman, armed with the knowledge that Jesus just gave her, puts down her water jugs, something of great value to her. She puts down her water jugs and she starts running back to her town. And she runs back to the town and she tells them, look, come see, I think I found the Messiah. Could this be the one that we've all been waiting for? Come and see for yourselves. This woman, armed with the knowledge that Jesus gives her, becomes the very first evangelist. She became empowered. She became liberated. And she wasn't satisfied in being liberated on her own. She came to bring collective liberation to her entire town. And she tells everyone, come, see, could this be the Messiah? This was out of the ordinary. Remember, Jesus lived in an out of, out of the ordinary kind of way. This woman who had spent so much time and energy trying to live outside of the lens of other people, went to the well at the hottest part of the day, out of the way all of a sudden comes leaping into the community and says, come see something really important is going on. She had a new identity because she met 
the Messiah. Her liberation caused her to overflow with the desire to see the liberation of other people. This is what happens when we encounter the Christ. So you and I, I wonder, are we living satisfied with our own liberation? Where in our heart does God have to challenge us to fight and lean into the liberation of other people as well? The gospel is meant to be a collective liberation, not just for us individually, but for all. So when we come to know Christ, we experience the joy and the fullness and transformation that comes from loving and being known by Jesus. And there's purpose for it. There's purpose in it for not just ourselves, but for everyone around us. So I'm going to come back to this question. Where is your Samaria? Who is your Samaria? Where do you need liberation? And where do the people around you need liberation? Following Christ means living a life that looks like his. One that swims against the current of political power, social prestige, racist and sexist ideologies, and and it works to actively undo the wrongs set up by empire and domination. Jesus was about collective liberation, especially for those on the margins. So Forest City family, where is your Samaria? Who is your Samaria? I want you to do this with me. Close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and, you know, raise your arms and turn around and, and all that. I'm just asking you to close your eyes just so that we can maybe have better ears to hear. I want us to have a moment just sitting with the Holy Spirit. Maybe we're making room right now to allow the Holy Spirit to make us a little bit uncomfortable. Next week, we're about to enter into the Lenten season. So Lent if you didn't grow up with this tradition, is is basically like the 40 days before Easter. And for many people, they, um, they, they practice this tradition of giving something up in order to prepare their hearts and their minds and their spirits in anticipation of Holy Week and Easter. So people will fast from things, maybe certain foods or, or, or media. They'll, they'll give something up in order to become more in tune with God. And if this hasn't been a practice for you, here's my takeaway for today. I hope that this message will continue to reverberate in you. I hope that this prayer will continue after we leave church this morning. I hope that you'll ask the Holy Spirit, in this season of Lent, will you help me to give up comfort? Will you ask the Holy Spirit to help you to grow through discomfort? Maybe we can be intentional every day to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to grow through discomfort. Holy Spirit, where can we grow through giving up comfort? I'm not going to be the voice of the Holy Spirit for you right now. But if I may give some suggestions, maybe for some of us, we can be intentional about going to places where we are not the majority. I know that uh, Lauren and Carrington and in their very expressive ways of worship have stretched some of us 
uh, in the ways that we are used to experiencing worship. You didn't grow up in a tradition where, where people worship with their whole body <laughs> during song. So maybe that's been a little bit uncomfortable for you at times. And I, I'm, I'm glad that you, that you all keep coming back and leaning into the diverse expressions of worship. This might be a little bit risky for me to say, but what if, what if you went to church a couple of Sundays at a place where you and people who look like you, people who you readily identify with, aren't the majority? What if you went into spaces and places where you, not being a part of the majority, could go and learn? Not, not, not to serve, not to go and tutor, to give free clothes, but to go and learn. Maybe there are people from even within this community here that are different from you that you could ask for cultural mentorship from. These are practical ways in which we can undo some of the lessons that we've learned. Some, some of the things that we've grown comfortable with. If we want to be a body of Christ that's, that's, that's serious about living in, in ways that go against the current, then we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So Holy Spirit, I'm just asking that you would do a work in each of us individually that we might have the scope of collective liberation in mind that you would liberate my brother, my sister, myself from things, biases, ways of doing things, ways of comfort in me, that we might become more like the diverse kingdom of God and that we might be able to better reach across the aisle to hold hands like Ebony talked about, but doing it in, in, in a meaningful way that brings you glory, that, that this family at Forest City would be radically different from the ways that the world does things. And people would get curious about this body right here. How can so many people who are so different from each other come together, love one another, be humble, and no one person dominates over another? How can we demonstrate that more fully and more meaningfully? Lord, my prayer for my brothers and sisters in this Lent season is that they would ask you, Lord, to make them comfortable with being uncomfortable, that they would give up comfort in some ways in order that they would grow through their discomfort. And in doing so, would more and more people come to know that you are a God who liberates, you are a God who sees, especially those on the margins. You've been listening to Susie Gomez with part four of the series titled Subversive. Thanks for listening.